I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You're on Team Human, where we challenge the operating systems driving our society, reveal the embedded codes, and share strategies for sustainable living, economic justice, and preservation of the quirky nooks and crannies that make people so much more than mere programs. This is where the conscious beats the automatic, an intervention by people on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Today we're thinking about how to save big business from itself, and we'll be joined by my good friend Aaron Dignan. And I've had actually a very strange few weeks trying to engage business on their problems. And as I see it, they are keeping themselves from doing good business because good business doesn't really fit into their game plan. The the best example of this, the one that's that's really people have responded to best, is the supposed failure of Twitter these days. And when I saw my friend Evan Williams on the cover of the Wall Street Journal with the number four point three billion dollars under his face, I was half happy for him, but the majority of me was thinking, this guy's fucked. Right. They're letting him they're letting him ring the bell on the New York Stock Exchange or the Nasdaq Exchange and applauding him when you have those guys standing around clapping for you and letting you ring them bell. It's not because you've done something disruptive to business as usual. It's because you've confirmed the primacy of corporate capitalism to the entire business landscape. And what happened was that because Twitter's investors uh, now want to make a 100x or 1,000x return on the money they've put in, they look at the fact that Twitter makes $500 million a quarter 
as an abject failure. Now, this is a company where people, if you don't know Twitter, you send 140 character messages from one person's device to a bunch of other people's device. That's it. It's SMS, you know, it, it's SMS messaging broadcasted. And they make $2 billion a year doing that, which my grandmother would say, oh, my God, Douglas, you made it. And for them, it's an abject failure because it turns out $2 billion is about all you can make doing that. That's about saturation. And maybe 10, 15 years from now or two or four years from now, China will go on Twitter or Pakistan or somebody else. And But right now, that's about it. And the company's not allowed to stop there because the people that have invested want to get their money out. They're not investing in a company to keep it, they're investing in a company to sell it. It's like, uh, flip this house. Nobody wants to live in it. They just want to dress it up and get it over to the next one. And this idea that companies can only make money by growing, they can't make money by selling goods and services to other people for more than it costs them to make it, which is what I always thought business was, this is it's destroying not just these strange little Silicon Valley overinvested companies, but real regular big companies. You know, the few times when I've gotten into the real corridors of power at these Fortune 100 companies, when I've gotten to do lectures, I did a, a, a lecture for you know one giant soft drink company. And before I went on, they had the CEO up there in front of all the senior vice presidents and people chanting 5.2, 5.2, which was the percent growth target for that company for that year. And they had banners come down from the ceiling, 5.2, 5.2. And I got up there and I said, Jesus Christ, you're one of the 50 biggest companies in the world. And you are not satisfied. You cannot go on unless you grow. You know, If you have to grow in order to be okay, then we're all screwed. You know, And I talked to the CEO after, after my talk and he said, look, we have to grow. The, the shareholders are not going to be happy. They don't want dividends. If we're giving them dividends, it means that we've forgotten how to grow the business. And if we give them dividends, their dividends are going to be taxed high compared to capital gains, which are taxed low. So even the entire system is optimized for growing stock, for somehow conquering more regions and extracting more value, and optimized against payroll, against revenue, against dividends, against actually making money in a real way through a business. So I actually, other than telling them, appealing to their conscience, you know, oh, didn't you like making bicycles? Don't you want to make good ones or good toasters? And what got you in this business? You know, appealing to the child, uh, which makes them cry. Um, it's really hard to know what to tell these colossal organizations in particular about how to shift towards doing something valuable, how to create value for people rather than just um, extract it in the name of growth so that the company can actually survive. And, and, and Aaron, I know you see them too. They are self-cannibalizing. They're selling their most productive assets because they can get cash for it and stick that back into share price where it's not serving the company. So you go in to what you think are the most powerful companies in the world and they are uh, teetering on the abyss of their own obesity. It's tragic on a certain level. It's schadenfreude on another level because let's watch these guys die. But but Aaron, I know you've been you've been thinking about helping corporations, you know, signify and exercise more productive circulatory practices. You know, you, you call out the silly 
and Push for the Purposeful. First is founder of Undercurrent, which was kind of a branding company, but really more of a, a stealth uh, a stealth business consultancy that created brands for companies and then forced them to live true to their <laughs> to the brand iconography they had bought. Um, then is the author of Game Frame, which really used not gamification but game logic towards helping uh, businesses sort of be smarter. And now as a founder of The Ready, which I think is sort of the most targeted uh, effort at changing the way uh, the way corporate America thinks about business and to try to restore some some values and sanity to what they're doing but you know to the to the essential problem here how do we help the few CEOs who want to how do we help them transition from this industrial growth economy to something where it's much more rational much more like real business I think it's I mean it's a great setup I think the trick is it's a little bit of a of a judo or a, or kind of a using their own momentum against them in a way they they want growth because they're you know encumbered by this system this economic OS that you talk about and so anything that can drive that is going to be the behavior that they want so where we usually start is saying look you've set up a system where the outside market wants growth 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 and you have to play to the quarter but what everybody actually needs, employees, shareholders, management, you know, customers, is for this thing to be able to think a little bit longer term and for this thing to be able to innovate. And so what we try to do is actually say, because we're now in a complex environment, high dynamics, lots of change, lots of volatility, lots of competitors and information, global pressure on the system, you can't manage it from the top down anymore. You can't, there's actually not enough time even for the orders to get out and the data to get back. And so the first step is to distribute authority, to distribute accountability and authority and the capacity to act, which has two really interesting consequences. One, when you distribute authority into this complex system, it becomes adaptive and it's able to start to invest laterally and more creatively in the places that might bear fruit and that might be oriented around customers where they actually touch the customer and see them every day. But second, as you know, once there's more of a communal or a community-oriented hive mind, if you will, once more people have a vote, more people have influence in the system rather than just at the top of the pyramid, suddenly it starts to act a little bit more ethically as well. It starts to actually kind of have a resistance to those regular dynamics because now it's being managed by everybody. And we see examples, you know, time and time again of systems that have sort of bucked this trend, whether it's W.L. Gore or Burtzorg or Morningstar or Valve. They're a little different than the other players in their category for that reason. So we actually lead them to the solution, but we lead them there through the growth drive. Right. So they become almost uh, well, more rhizomatic, say. Yeah, you know? exactly. So here you've got corporations following Deleuze, you know, <laughs> on a certain level. You know what I mean? So now, okay, it's this, you know, honeycomb structured thing. Um, does that extend beyond the employees to to the customers, the communities, the world where the company operates? I think it has to. I think the, the trick is that once you start to think about distributed authority and getting information and signal from everywhere, the, the membrane around the organization starts to diffuse. And you start to say, actually, it's not an us and them thing. It's an us with them thing. We're part of communities. We're part of partnerships. We're part of places where we now can solicit innovation. We can solicit ideas. We can work with and for. 
It just changes you. I mean, we talk about moving from a hierarchy mindset to a network mindset. If you actually work with a network mindset, then you no longer think of yourself as separate or without consequence. Right. Well, then, I mean, if the the boundaries around the corporation become more porous, then the whole notion that you can externalize environmental or labor costs kind of goes away. Right. Right. Because the children in China who are losing their fingers building your smartphones they're not just over there anymore, right? Now they're kind of part of what you're doing. But was a company really going to think that way? You know, oh, who really cares about those little Filipino slaves going down into the mines to get the, you know, molybdenum to <laughs> make my device? It's just if HP and Compaq are using them, then how am I going to use happy little children who are being educated right. instead of slave children? But I think a lot of our structure enables us to do that distancing. So when you say, when you sort of say, like, management who makes decisions is in Mountain View, and everybody else is just executing those orders, I mean, we've heard this pattern before, yeah. right? Now suddenly people can disassociate from the decisions they're making. I'm running the factory, but I'm running the factory to hit a number, as opposed to I'm running the factory and I have agency as a decision maker, as a distributed authority holder. And now we're going to actually collectively decide what's going to happen and how to manage some of these issues. And hilariously, we might still have a more efficient factory, right? We might actually, and we look at, at some of the examples I'm talking about, there are factories in Europe that are run as self-organized systems that are part of capitalist enterprises that have higher efficiency and lower cost and higher quality. But they, but they don't have to actually mistreat people to get it. Well, how do they get it? So essentially they get it by unlocking this untapped cognitive capacity of the people who are actually at the edge. So when you look at how Toyota beat GM in the, you know, in the 90s and late 80s, literally they sort of went to the factory floor and said, what could we do to make this more efficient? And they actually asked the people on the line. And whatever they said... They implemented and tested. There was no approval process. It was whatever idea you have, we're going to try it. As soon as we get data that it's good or bad, we'll act on it. But we're going to try everything. Well, that's what so, Walt Disney World exactly. say does that. You exactly. know, the, the famed, uh, what the heck was his name? The famed uh, uh, CEO when the Disney parks were almost dying. And he went and he said, look, all these people who are working in the parks, they're your intelligence. Right, right, right. What the heck was that guy's name? But he said um, the knowledge is out in the system. Yeah. And, and it is. And they had, you know, simple problems like, you know, uh, customers not being able to fit the strollers on the right. trains. And they go, oh, well, why don't we, instead of customers getting a stroller, why don't we give the customers a little uh, card that they stick in a stroller so you just give up your stroller when you go onto the train and take the one. train and get another one on the other side. It's like, duh. And it was, you know, it's a $15 an hour employee that comes up with this. Totally. But it, it makes, I mean, on the one hand, you can look at that as exploitation because it's like that person's still just getting 15 bucks an hour or whatever you get at the park. Well, and the company depends. now gets all this money. What's interesting is that depends, right? So if you distribute the authority to make the choice about the stroller, at what point do you distribute the authority to make the choice about the pay? So you, you actually start to say, what if we get increasing benefits from continually pushing out this ability to act? And so, yeah, it might be that they actually make different decisions about how they're compensated. And maybe they do share more in the upside, but they also create more upside. And that's a continuing cycle. So there's a little bit of kind of doing what we always did to get efficiency and to get scale is now breaking in the face of complexity and in the face of rapid change. And now we have to almost do the opposite in every respect to get the things we want to get. Now, that doesn't, uh, by the way, um, 
eliminate the risk of the scale forever phenomenon that you're talking about. There's still an, there are two problems. There's an economic OS that's broken and there's an organizational OS that's broken as a sort of sister case. Mm -hmm. And they both have to change. But what's interesting is I think we can change the organizational one first and it'll actually lean into the other. Most of the people who listen to this show probably have a knee-jerk reaction against business at all. Right. <laughs> right. That we should move to a commons, a sharing economy. It's abundance based. It's good. Let's get start with guaranteed minimum income. Right. And then move up from there. Sure. I mean, well, guaranteed minimum income is actually not bad for a regular business <laughs> yeah, either. I'm it's good for that. businesses because you end up with uh, you end up with more more innovators because nobody's taking a risk anymore. How do you ensure that when you go into the belly of the beast and talk to the head of some giant company that they're not just using the 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 style of what you're saying. Right, Use, using the, the hack for evil. Uh-huh. Um, it's interesting. We we debated this for years at Undercurrent and since then at The Ready. And, and there are definitely two camps. There's one camp that says, you know, continuous participatory governance by the commons with shareholders or with some kind of power structure is not an, an innately ethical or moral thing. And then there's other side that says, no, 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 it's, it, it's actually built into this OS. So if you have lots of people acting as censors, making decisions locally that add up to a purpose that they're all aligned around fundamentally, then you get good behavior. And I'm of that camp. I actually believe that, you know, People are by and large good. And even when I work with these companies, I mean, you go into places where you think, oh, you know, they're selling sugar water. They're, you know, they have no conscience. You meet people with kids, yeah. with families who are just, they're just pedaling the bike inside the, this extractive system, trying to make, you know, make their own retirement happen, trying to pay for kids' college. Right. I mean, they're not people, actually bad actors. Right. I mean, a lot of them are people who started just in cubicles right. anyway. Right. And then rose through the I, system, I, I, and now I'm a president. Almost purely through <laughs> inertia and, right. and, and sort of their own momentum of, of just staying there. So there are people, in many cases, not just super rich Exeter or whatever, it's just people like us who... There are people like us by and large yes and and i find that when you get people to start to question the way they work and question the way they make decisions and question how to get the outcomes they want to get then there is a there is a knock-on effect of better behavior there's a knock-on effect first locally right first just with how we treat our own people in our own team there are teams that are pathologically toxic at almost every major corporation you can right. think of where basically the boss is playing the boss role that they learned by watching the boss that was their boss. And they're telling everybody what to do and driving, you know, with, with all stick and no carrot. They're heavily competitive systems where we have to stack rank each other and, you know, kick out the bottom 10 percent and all this kind of that's all creating this system where we're basically just reflecting that back. And when you just peel those layers off and say, wait a second, you don't have to do any of that stuff and you can still achieve the purpose. And, and the purpose, by the way, is not shareholder value. That's one of the things that we've found to be common across every responsive organization that we study, the ones that are either self-organized or self-managed, that are, that are growing fast, even in the, in the midst of what you're talking about, that are achieving their goals, are oriented around a purpose other than growth and other than shareholder value. There's some other impact they're trying to create. And they're allowed to legally? <laughs> well, it's interesting, you know, the whole uh, fiduciary responsibility stuff that comes yeah. up at scale. I think it is problematic. It's, it's, you know, it's encoded in a way that doesn't lead to good behavior. But interestingly, there's a lot of management and operational gray area around how you would actually enforce that. 
you know, it's hard to it's hard to make a case that a team is not operating in accordance with that duty when they're making operational choices that in a complex environment tend to lead to growth. So if I say I'm distributing authority and letting the factory decide and people say, well, that's not, you know, in, in accordance with your duty. It's like, well, I can point to 15 other self-organized factories that have more efficiency. So you don't so, see uh, you don't see shareholder revolts or activist evil, you know, icon type, uh, uh, you know, these there's for those of you who don't know, there's uh, uh, people who often own a whole bunch of a company and then use that to attack the CEO or the management of the board of trustees to say, you know, and get and to rally an attack to say, look, this company, this, our share price could be higher. <laughs> right. So you've got to change the way you're doing business. You're being too nice. You're not charging enough money. You're you're giving your workers too much. Lay off 20,000 people, get to work and give us money. Yeah, and it's sort of, I mean, that's like an extractive system built on top of an extractive yeah. system in a way because all they're trying to do is leverage that, in many cases, just the uh, communication of that idea to then benefit in the gain on the share price that they're involved. Right. So it's all optics and nonsense. And that, I mean, that does happen. And I think I've been involved with a few clients that have had activist shareholders in the mix. And the problem that I think most people don't recognize is separate in a way of what they're trying to get and how they're trying to get it, just the fight to resist that that outside management, it, it sucks up everybody's time and energy mm-hmm. all the way down into the business. People in the fifth tier of marketing are still focusing on ultimately telling a story that will fend off that, that activist. And so the whole place grinds to a halt. And once again, when we come out the other end, we have an innovation problem. Because right. everybody's been focused on scaring off Carl or whoever. And so now we've missed a whole year of, of thinking about what the market actually needs and what it wants and what we could do. And so it's it, almost everything that's going on is, is exacerbating the innovation issue, you know, all in, in the spirit of efficiency. Right. I mean, well, what you're arguing, which to uh, many regular Americans, my, my the, the Trump voting relatives I just found out I had... <laughs> I didn't know anyone who was going to support Trump. Not even, I mean, and nobody. Now you do. And now I do. And it's blood. My own <laughs> blood. I mean, this is another show. I don't but, ask family about that. I can't, and they're not, I can't bear to know. But they're not thinking of it ironically. Right. That's the thing. It's I mean, I can a... vote for Trump ironically or, or and, <laughs> anarchistically theater. as theater or as anarchy or some sort of misguided. Right. right, just, right. But with this, full uh, knowledge that exactly. it's totally I want to see the world end in my yeah. lifetime. Let's go. Uh, but, but but I forgot what I was even going to say. I got so upset by that. Oh, like those relatives. I'm sure a lot of the people you talk to, when when you describe the resilient, edge-aware organization that's responsive and fractal and holistic and 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 uh, and rhizomatic, it sounds like communism to a lot of people. And on a certain level. It, you're talking about corporations becoming more like Mondragon, more like right. uh, co-ops right. or, or commons, no? Yeah, no, I think there, I mean, it's funny, the, uh, the communism concept comes up whenever people start to dig into this work and they get far enough and they go, hey, wait a second, I've seen this before. <laughs> the, I think the difference is that, uh, you know, the fatal flaw with communism, in my view, was about centralization. 
the centralization of resources, the centralization of strategic decisions about where everything was going to go. Sure, then they were going to distribute and, and they were going to sort of give as to need. But there was still this central control mindset. It was not, you know, there's this book, uh, Starfish and the Spider, right? Mm -hmm. Starfish, you can cut off a leg, it just grows two starfish. Spider, you cut off a leg, there's no more leg coming. If you cut off the head, it's dead. And so there are really these two kinds of organizations. There's starfish and spiders. If you take AA and you cut off a chapter of Alcoholics Anonymous, it doesn't kill Alcoholics Anonymous. But if you cut off the head office of the Soviet Union, everything goes to shambles, right? So one of the prerequisites for doing this right is to make sure that there's a decentralization of strategy, of power, etc. Then you get the benefits of the sort of communist, everybody's participating in the decisioning and the upside argument, but you don't get the downsides of central planning and strategy and, and long, drawn-out, often misguided attempts to predict the future. The edge is just doing that. It's it's right. You've turned the, the system into an algorithm right. in the right way. And plus, once you've made it hierarchical, then you have someone in power, and then people want to stay in power. Right, and then you create all these knock-on effects of, of centralization of power, control, authority, et cetera, that all goes with it. So, so you really want to avoid that. And interestingly, the new role for the leader in these systems, who, by the way, still benefits disproportionately. I mean, there's a lot of systems like this where the leader is still a millionaire or a billionaire. Oh, good. Um, so so it's, there's still hope. It's well, I think that <laughs> you know, if you if you can gather and create a system that is self-managing in pursuit of a purpose and that creates a lot of upside, you can participate in that. You know, right. proportional to to your influence up to a point. Interestingly, once people achieve that, they sort of don't need it anymore, right? They're the ones that take the dollar salary, or they don't, right. or they don't play anymore. And I, I actually wanted to ask you a question about you know, how much is too much in these systems? Because we're managing that ourselves, trying to figure out how much should a founder be entitled to when they create a system like this. But in any case... It's got to be, I mean, you got to put upper bounds on it from the beginning. Sure, sure. I mean, because otherwise, if you end up, I mean, in the Zuckerberg problem, mm -hmm. where here's this guy who's saying he's going to give back, what, 95% mm -hmm. of his money? If you're going to give back 95% of your money, it means you took too much. Way too much. And it means you're putting it back now in these weird intentional little blocks of cash ways. It's not going to be as distributed. In a centralized way. Right. Yeah, which is the problem in the first place. Yeah, I think bounds on it is right, and I think you, we sort of need to encode those into the DNA from the beginning. Obviously, there needs to be some incentive to be the risk taker, to be the the catalyst. Um, maybe you know, maybe altruistic incentives are enough for some, maybe not for others. But there, you know, whatever those whatever those mix of incentives are. But yeah, certainly, certainly some some caps are. But some if you figure that. any person, I mean, once you've made, I mean, let me just think of a. Hundred million dollars. Sure. Yeah, it's I'm like, good. I mean, who could really? I mean, I I don't. Yeah. I have trouble imagining spending more than ten. My Although, favorite quote is the yeah the how many boats can you water ski behind? Right. Uh, you know. I, I mean, yeah. I, yeah. And at that point, if you're buying real estate, you're buying it as an investment, which right. you don't need you don't because you're rich. Limit it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Which is half of what the Manhattan skyline is now. It's just a bunch of people holding real estate That's as a problem. Yeah. And that's a problem for those of us who used to live there. Right. It's just capital storage. But you can't compete against people <laughs> who are storing capital. Right. Right. Yeah, you can't compete at all. So you got to go to one of the real problem. living places. Exactly. Exactly. So, And I think it's interesting because cities, I mean, are one of the systems that we study for, for clues about organizations. We look at basically any complex adaptive system, be it your immune system or a hill of ants or cities. And usually cities do a pretty good job at, at self-refreshment. 
Right. Um, but cities compared to nations too. Exactly. And cities, I mean, I've always argued cities are natural. Mm-hmm. You know that cities is where where we used to have the city state even right. late medievalism. Right. It was the sort of the largest organic expression of, of humanity. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas the nation state is it's an abstract different. one. It yeah, really it's is. Something different altogether. Yeah. Because well, and it's funny too because one of the biggest things we do when we're coming in to sort of swoop in and help with with org design is we actually cap. We limit scale of any group, any function. So we limit team size and we limit team of team size. So basically it's a network of cells that are autonomous and or as autonomous as they can be in a, in a dependent system. Um, and we cap it at 150 people, 200, you know, Dunbar's number-ish level people and basically say larger groups than that are not natural. They shouldn't be. They shouldn't be functioning. And the they nation state, to the nation state of yeah. the of the corporation in this metaphor, basically exists only as as a sphere of activity, as a purpose boundary, but not as any kind of functional governance engine for any you know for any real meaning or substance. Right. So it becomes again. It becomes like a Madrigan cooperative. It's a yeah. a, a whole bunch of smaller entities that sort of uh, clump together to it's achieve a larger purpose. It's a marketplace. Yeah, right. and, and really, I mean, that's the interesting question is how big is too big? How big is big enough for, for a mission? And we were talking about this earlier today at lunch. Like when you're, when you're Twitter or when you're meetup.com or whoever, in a digital world where you don't have a geographic boundary on this is my area to serve, how do you know when to stop growing? Right. How do you know when to draw the line? Exactly. Is yeah. it global? Is it international? Yeah, the, uh, you know, the Catholics... Back in uh, you know late 1800s, we're talking about this. You know the the model that you're describing, distributism, was a Catholic concept, and then Chesterton right. and Bellick talked about it. The idea being not that we should, as communism might argue, although it really doesn't, you know, to distribute the spoils after they've been earned, <laughs> let's pre-distribute the means of production right. to the workers, which is really what you're talking about. So the workers own their factory in one way or another. It's a commons, and the trick then though is. In the in the Pope's era, when they were talking, they were didn't want a business to be larger than it needed to be in order to perform its function. Right. So that if you opened a pizzeria in one town, and then the people in the next town want a pizzeria, they open that up their, their own. own. Yeah. But when you're Google and your function is organize the world's information, where is that boundary? There is none. Right. And so I think that's the most interesting thing is even when we give authority to the commons or to the people of these organizations if the purpose or the orientation is still on a very scaled mission, then, it, then it'll be very difficult to kind of rein in that size. And even Mondragon's a good example. I mean, that thing's 100,000 people. Yeah, it's big. But the thing is with, with a Google, if their job was to organize the world's information, there would be a theoretical, <laughs> ideolo- there'd be a, a boundary, boundary around right. it. Right. But it's not. They want to organize the world's shopping choices. <laughs> they want to, you well, know. Well, they have a cleverly stated purpose, right, in the sense that it it feels in line with what we're talking about. And in many ways, it has galvanized a pretty amazing movement of intellect and, and passion. Uh, but it also is interpretable to sort of mean like everything. Right. Right. Like my biological information, my, you know, shopping information, my advertising information, my media information. Suddenly it's sort of like saying our mission is to organize the world. Right. Right. Which is, yeah, which is a little bit, uh, a little bit rough. So I think mission orientation and purpose statements 
become more important as we go forward as a boundary setting practice. Right. And, and, and the other is the approach. I mean, the the approach that made Google famous was a bottom-up, tiny algorithm mm -hmm. to take down Yahoo, which was right. a top-down corporate strategy for organizing <laughs> our web. Right. And then they grow that until they become the reverse. Right. Now they're this giant holding company, Alphabet. They're buying and selling little military companies. And I mean, who are you, Google? You right. know, who are you is, I mean, and this is the frightening thing. It's they don't want to organize the world's information. They want to re replace humanity with Ray Kurzweil's artificial intelligent brain. Right, right, right. Well, and it's interesting, too, because I have I do have this debate about kind of what is what is inevitable, what technology wants, the whole Kevin Kelly thing, et cetera. It, you know, I'm not. I'm not um, romantic about the idea that humanity is a static thing that we can pin and say, oh, in 1780, we were ultimately human. And now anything that's different or forward from that is a degradation of that humanity because we've always been a moving idea and it'll all, it, will, it will adapt and, and change in concert with technology. But I think the, the question is sort of of intent and of also how do you make the transition humanist? So as, as opposed to making the tradition, the tr transition really violent and really, you know, unequal and all this kind of stuff, as we move towards some future, whatever that is, it's not going to be a bunch of people running around barefoot with no technology, but it's also not going to be, you know, I hope, a bunch of algorithms lording over a bunch of, you know, people in poverty. Uh, which is what it is Which now. is where we're heading. <laughs> which is where we're heading. And so, but this is why I think, this is why I think it's so important to start with, the means of production and the organization as the focal point, because if we can orient that as a way to be more, more equal, more beneficial, more kind of self-directed, then at least there's a, a kind of built-in resistance. And there's also a pattern of performance that is, that is frankly, and we're seeing this now, changing the minds and, and the mindsets of the shareholders and the boards and the executives of these companies. I mean, I don't, I don't waltz into my customers and, and get met with blank stares. I get met with, yeah, we know there's a problem with how we're structured and it, 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 it inhibits our capacity to change and to respond and to grow and to do all the things we want to do. Is there a broad scale awareness of what you're writing about in your book? I don't think there is yet. But my hope is that this, this stuff will be the gateway to that. When you understand it at a small scale, you can start to understand it at a large scale. And you can always leave behind copies for them. <laughs> I'll get yeah. you a volume exactly. discount. Exactly. I'll just I'll Johnny Appleseed. <laughs> I'll Johnny Appleseed the halls of, of power. <laughs> All right. Well, Aaron, thanks so much for for joining Team Human. I. See you as a as a full fledged member. Thank you. I'm all human all the you time. You are all human all the time, and and, and hoping to uh, um, reverse or even eradicate some of the uh, uh, extinction plans um, that are being drawn up. <laughs> They're not even planned. It's like <laughs> we're just driving. No one's at the wheel. Right. The the automatic uh, e extinction outcomes <laughs> of our of our largest abstracted corporate players these days. Um, we're going to keep an eye on you, and uh, I'll put some uh, links to your to your writing your blog at the at your site. Yeah. On Medium, quite a bit, yeah. On Medium. Thanks for joining Team Human. We'll be back in the Basement Media Squad here at the Laboratory for Digital Humanism again next week with new strategies for human intervention in the machine. This show was produced and edited by Stephen Bartolome. Thanks to all our listeners who have been emailing, sharing suggestions, and supporting Team Human and the Laboratory for Digital Humanism. Thanks to our friends at Zago for helping get us started. 
Thanks to Meetup for bringing people together in the real world. Learn more about Meetup at meetup.com. Again, thanks to Fugazi for kindly sharing the song we play in the intro and outro. My name is Stephen Bartolome, and I'm on Team Human. And I'm Douglas Rushkoff. Come visit us at teamhuman.fm, where you'll find more information about our supporters and guests, the work they're doing, resources to get involved, and ways to find the others. Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.